Well, it's great to be with you here this evening. Let me uh, pray before we open God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have uh, brought us all here. Thank you that your word has something to speak to us every time we open it. Thank you that there is more going on now than just us merely looking at the words of some book, but actually your Holy Spirit is at work and we are um, looking at your revelation to us. Help us, Lord, now to um, look at your word, to be humble, um, and help us to see more about you um, and the wonder of the gospel in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last night, or more specifically, actually, um, around about 5.30 this morning was the biggest mixed martial arts fight um, in history. Now, I'm not sure if many of you here would have watched it. Um, I'm not sure many of you would have got up at 5.30, especially, to watch it. But it was between two men, uh, Conor McGregor and Khabib Nurmagomedov, which is quite a hard name to pronounce. Now, both of those men had, um, had a kind of respect for each other over the years. I think you'll probably see on the slide behind me um, from the picture they took together. But around about two years ago, there was uh, a kind of little bit of an argument between both of them. Just a small argument, nothing um, really to make the papers. But over time, it gradually descended into chaos. So six months ago, Khabib um, went to one of Connor's teammates and he surrounded him, 20 men, and surrounded this one person and threatened him. He slapped him around the face. So how did Connor respond? Well, he got a private jet, yes he has a private jet, and flew over from Dublin to New York with a gang of men and attacked a bus that Khabib was on. He picked up a metal dolly and threw it at the window and many people were injured. Then last night, at around about 5.30 as I said, these two men squared off against one another. And Khabib won, and the first thing that he did once he won wasn't to celebrate, but it was to jump over the cage and it was to attack one of Connor's teammates. The whole arena, it descended into chaos. People were jumping into the cage as the world watched on. Afterwards, there were Irish and Russian fans fighting one another in the streets. Something that started so small and yet descended into chaos very quickly. Our culture's fascinated, isn't it, with death and violence. Millions of people would have watched last night and been enthralled by it. But whether it's a TV show or whether it's a murder mystery, there's something that interests us about violence and murder. If you believe in survival of the fittest, then really we're just animals. And the natural conclusion is that it's just random chance that these things happen. There isn't actually an answer to any of these things. However... Interestingly enough, the world also judges, doesn't it? It judges people like Conor McGregor and Khabib Nurmagomedov. It judges the people that we see that are murderers. We look at somebody like Hitler and we think that he's disgusting. So we judge these people, but then what about ourselves? Listen to this. The most beautiful thoughts are always beside the darkest. Today, I seriously thought about killing you. I contemplated premeditated murder. I think this is the part where I'm supposed to say something good to compensate so it doesn't come off bad. But sometimes I think really bad things. Really, really, really bad things. 
Well, those are the words of a Kanye West um, recent song titled I Thought About Killing You. Interesting title um, for a song, but it created a buzz in the media. And I think actually it really does pick up on this point. That although we see things in the news and we see actions like what happened last night, actually inside of all of our minds there is that propensity, that is their potential for anger. Whether it is that person that cuts across you and while you're in the car, whether it is your spouse or whether it is a friend, there are times that each of us get angry. Now our world would say that all humans are inherently good. But then how does that match up to these thoughts that we have of anger? How does that match up to the fact that there are people in this world who are violent and actually um, practice that violence? Well, tonight's passage is far more than just a murder story. Actually, it shows us about the pervasive and the perverse nature of sin. And it also shows how it spreads rapidly in the human heart and how God also responds to it. So there are three points that we're going to be going through tonight. And the first one we find in verses 1 to 8. And that is that sin rejects God's rightful rule. So, so far in Genesis, we've come to this point where Adam and Eve have received the curse from God. They've rejected him. And because of their rebellion and disobedience... Actually, sin has broken these relationships. You might remember a couple of weeks that Danny spoke about the three relationships. Man had a perfect relationship with God. He had a perfect relationship with woman and a perfect relationship with creation. And the fall ruined all of those relationships. And in many ways, I think we're left with a cliffhanger at the end of uh, chapter 3. We're left with this angel that God has put in the Garden of Eden to stop man from going back into the garden. Man and God have been separated. Ultimately, the future looks very bleak. And I think the question that we are left with is, well, what is a world going to look like with this new sinful creation? Well, we get to chapter 4, and it's answered for us. And actually, it begins really positively. So Adam and Eve, um, they're blessed with a family. Now, the birth alone would have been quite a stark reminder, I imagine, um, to Eve of the curse, of the fact that God had said that those that were going to give birth would experience pain during childbirth. But what we see is that actually Eve turns and she praises God. She gives him the credit for this new life, and it seems so positive. We have these babies, we have Cain and Abel. God's given his grace to rebels. Both of these babies must have seemed so cute and innocent. You know, we always do weird things, don't we, with babies? You get grown adults suddenly making very strange noises around babies for for no apparent reason. But these two babies would have been just like that. Maybe Daph would have carried them around the church with us all smiling at them. There would have been nothing to show the horror of what was to come. And actually as they grew up, there are even more positive signs. Both of them go to God. They're about to give God an offering. But this is where sin rears its ugly head. Sin is to reject God's rightful rule. And we see it here in these verses. Look with me at uh, verses 3 to 5. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions for 
from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offerings, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Now, there's no explanation specifically in the text saying that God is looking for um, bloodshed as part of an offering. It isn't that actually God just hates vegetables, um, although I myself could never be a vegetarian. But actually, if we look closely, we can see that there is a difference between these two offerings. You see, Abel brings the firstborn from his flocks. The very first evidence of God's grace to him leads to a natural response of him wanting to praise God. The giver is more important than the actual gift. However, there's no mention of Cain giving the first fruits. He just gives whatever he comes across at the, the time. He's not concerned with honoring God. It's actually fascinating, and I've been really fascinated looking at this, Cain's religious. Really, he is religious. He is giving an offering to God. He doesn't just sit at home. He isn't the kind of person that wouldn't go to church. He gives an offering to God. And that is what religion is. It's giving out of sense of requirements, thinking that your actions are what justifies you. But you can be religious and godless. Cain does what seems to be right, but it's with a sinful and selfish heart. And his response proves this. Because when God accepts Abel's offering and not his, we read in verse 5. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. We've all been there, haven't we? We've, um, we've shortchanged something. Maybe it's um, a project at work. Um, maybe we're just serving in church. But actually, we're only doing it to look good or out of a sense of requirements. And then somebody alongside us gets some praise for doing exactly the same thing that we're doing. What's our initial response? What's my initial response? Jealousy. Well, why don't I get praise for that? Do they not see me? Maybe I should make it a little bit more obvious that I'm stacking the chairs or that I'm serving in this way. I should be getting the praise for that as well. Actually, our response highlights our heart. We want the praise for ourselves. We can be serving God, but we can actually have a selfish heart. And so often we give excuses. I'll give the excuse of, oh, I'm too tired, or I haven't got that much energy, or maybe even I'm too busy, or actually I don't quite have enough money to give God um, the, the money that I should be giving to him. It's my gift to use for myself. Our attitude to God becomes less about his rule in our lives and more about him accepting what we choose to give him. Cain's reaction displays his motives. He's jealous of his brother and he's angry at God's judgment. And the New Testament actually unpacks this a little bit for us perfectly. We read in Hebrews 11 verse 4, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. And then in 1 John 3 verse 12, his, that is Cain's, own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. But God is gracious to Cain. He speaks to him. He doesn't just leave him. He actually, he actually speaks to him and he tells him that sin desires to have him. The actual wording um, that's used here is describing sin like an animal or like a demon that is crouching 
waiting to devour its prey. And that's what sin is like. It longs to destroy us. It longs to hook us in. Even with the smallest thing, it longs to hook us in. And ultimately, it captures its prey in verse 8. As Cain commits this horrific and premeditated act of murder. We have the first death in history, the once cute baby that we all would have looked down at, made a weird noise at, is now a murderer. We have the first death in history. It's a cowardly and a tragic act. And as we look at it, we should be disgusted because Cain's killing his own flesh and blood because of his own sinful motives. God's made man in his own image. And yet Cain taking this person's life is really to spit in the face of his creator. It's belittling the image of God in which Abel was made in. And it's to laugh at the precious gift of life that God has given. Cain ultimately places himself as his own God. So we're left with this tension, well, how will God respond to this? Because actually after Adam and Eve's rebellion, we see that God deals with that directly. He, he gives a curse as well. So what's specifically going to happen now? Cain has committed this atrocious act. How is God going to respond? Will he just leave humanity to itself? Or will he step in to deal with humanity? And that brings us to our second point, verses 9 to 16. Sin leads to God's righteous response. If you look down at verse 9, you'll see there's a parallel of what happens in Genesis 3. There's actually quite a few parallels between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, if you read them together. God begins by questioning man. But you'll notice there are parallels, but there is also a worsening reality. Eve is persuaded by the servant to take the fruit. But Cain isn't even deterred by God himself. And God's reaction is very similar to what we see in Genesis 3. Just as he called out to Adam and Eve, he speaks to Cain and he asks him, where, where is your brother? But again, the worsening reality comes again. Because unlike his parents, Cain doesn't even admit to hiding. He doesn't even admit to his guilt. He doesn't try and even hide his sin. Instead, his reply is one really of indifference and sarcasm. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Not just a lie, but a complete disregard for his own family and what he'd done. And I think that's the culture of our day, isn't it? This, this idea that actually us to take responsibility is, is some kind of negative thing. You're number one in your life. Do what makes you happy. So we have a culture in which if a child is unwanted or will be an inconvenience, it's, it's okay to abort. We have a culture that is pushing more and more. Actually, if somebody's getting a little bit more ill and they're getting towards old age, well, it's probably just a strain on the NHS. So, you know, why don't we let them commit euthanasia? We have families breaking down left, right, and center. The perfect relationship that God had made humans to have with one another is a distant, distant memory. Look down at verse 10 with me. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Just like the fall, 
There is a righteous response by God. And he curses Cain for his sin. Man's relationship with God, his relationship with mankind, and his relationship with creation was perfect before in Genesis 2. But the fall breaks each and every one of those relationships. And actually we see in Genesis 4 that these are further broken as well. We see this fracture between the relationship between Cain and God. We see the relationship between man and man being broken as brother kills brother. And then we see God curses Cain in relation to the ground. The ground which has already been cursed in Genesis 3 actually now will no longer yield Cain any crops. Cain hadn't praised God for the gifts that he'd given him. He'd just brought the fruits to try and, I guess, appease God in some way or just to tick a box. And then he'd spilt his brother's blood onto that very same ground. That very same ground which now cries because his brother's blood has been spilt on it. That ground will now symbolize death for Cain. Cain's going to be a restless wanderer. And again, we have an interesting contrast. Adam and Eve accepted the curse that God gave to them. But instead we have Cain pleading with God. And on first look, it looks um, quite positive. Cain's pleading with God. It seems actually maybe that he, he really doesn't want to be cast from God's presence. Maybe he's learned from his mistake. Well, no. Verse 14 reveals his selfish motives. This isn't repentance or remorse, but instead it's self-pity and self-preservation. He's just worried that somebody else is going to kill him. But even in this, God is gracious and just. He puts a mark on Cain. We're not sure what that mark was, but he puts a mark on him. And that means that he will not be murdered. Grace. But also justice. Because Cain is still going to have to live out the punishment that God has given. God keeps his nature of being both gracious and being a just judge. So humanity, again, has been cast out of God's presence. Cain has been sent east of the Garden of Eden again, just like we see in Genesis 3 for Adam and Eve. And the growth of sin has seemingly reached rock bottom. And we're left with the question, well, what is the world going to look like with murder now as a reality? And with this, we come to our final point, verses 17 to 26. God is gracious in light of repeated rebellion. So despite Cain's sin and his rejection of God's rule, God still provides a son for him. He still blesses this murderer. But Cain doesn't doesn't even recognize God's gift. Eve calls out to God and thanks him and recognizes that he gave life. Cain instead goes off to try and build a city really directly opposing that curse that God gave him of being a restless wanderer. And Cain's, interestingly, not just blessed with a family, but actually God shows his grace in Cain's line, being responsible for technology. As you read through um, all of these uh, different names, which were read uh, very well for us earlier, we see that things like tents, raising livestock, musical instruments, even the creation of tools are down to Cain's descendants. 
God is gracious in letting Cain's line not only preserve, but also give gifts to humanity, which can be used to good, for good things. But we find repeated rebellion. Look down at verse uh, 23 with me. Lamech said to his wives, Adder and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. We're introduced to this character Lamech, the kind of man you wouldn't want to meet down a dark alley. And not only does he go against God's ordained design for marriage in taking two wives, one's not enough for Lamech, but actually he follows the ways of Cain and he murders in cold blood and he even boasts about it. He uses God's gift of songs to actually boast about this murder. Maybe he was the modern day, uh, or maybe he was the Kanye West of his day. He mocks God's protection of Cain as well by declaring that he can protect himself. His heart is set on being his own God. And at this point in the chapter, we should be rightly shocked and, and disgusted at the world which has been left in a state of sin and violence. A world in which we know ourselves today. One in which if you walk through Kingston late at night or walk past certain pubs in Chesington, you feel quite worried. We heard this morning of that man who crossed the road in a different place because of those people that were walking in their hoods. We live in a world where we do fear violence. But the chapter ends in God's grace in light of humanity, humanity's sin. Things have been getting progressively worse, but God grants Adam and Eve and son in the place of Abel. And again, they respond rightly to God by giving him credit for their son, who are they named Seth. And we have this wonderful sentence right at the end of the chapter. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. God grants one in Abel's place. And through Seth's line, there is a ray, a small ray of hope. A hope of one to come who would crush the serpent's head that we've already seen in Genesis. And of a people who would call on the name of the Lord. Those who would follow the example of Abel, who gave this righteous offering to God. Abel, the one who Hebrews says gave his offering to God by faith. Now Abel was declared righteous. We know that from Hebrews because his faith was in God. It wasn't in false religion and his actions. But he was murdered having given this offering. And because of that, his blood cries out for justice. It cries out for justice for all those since who've been murdered or had any violence done to them. Our world cries out for justice. We read the news. We hear stories about people being stabbed. We cry out for justice. Well, God responds to that cry. His response to a world that rejects him is that he sent his son to take our shame and guilt. Abel's blood cries out for justice, but we read this in Hebrews 12, 24. If you're a Christian... You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus was utterly, utterly innocent. Yet he gave up his life as an offering so that we might be right with him. Now as we've read through this chapter, you may have been like me as I was um, preparing for this talk, judging Cain and Lamech. We may judge people like Conor McGregor and uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov. We may judge people in our world that we see doing horrendous things like violence and murder. But the reality is, is that we're more like them than we care to admit. The Lord Jesus himself says that our hearts reveal our guilt. Matthew 5.21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. We all stand condemned. I stand condemned even in the last half a day. I've been angry. We come to God thinking that he should be pleased with us. That he should accept our offerings. Because we're naturally good. But our hearts are naturally evil. We may not be murderers or physically punch somebody in the face. But actually our hearts are are resentful and unloving. We feel sinful anger, and that condemns us. Well, what is to be our response? Let me read those words of Hebrews again. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Let me read that again. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. And if you are a Christian here, then the call really is that we should be examining our hearts. Sin crouches and it longs to devour us. I wonder what are the areas that it crouches in your life? The Christian life can so easily turn into mere social normality. We go to church because we've always gone. Most of our families here, we have a lot of friends and the kids' work's pretty good. We get into serving because actually it's just naturally what we should do. And again, it looks good to other people. So easily we can just go through the motions. We can approach God, but we're not seeking a relationship with him. We're not seeking a relationship with the Lord Jesus So often for many of us, jealousy and anger are areas that sin is is constantly crouching. Even just this week, I've been preparing this and stupid things are being annoying me. I'm trying to play pool, which I'm not very good at, and I miss a shot and I get ridiculously angry for no reason. I'm playing on a computer game against a friend and I get angry. All these things are happening and yet I'm looking at God's word, but I'm still responding in anger. My heart is sinful. And there is a warning here, because just as Cain started with a very, very small hint of jealousy, so sin so often cascades and grows and grows in our lives. Just that small sentence that we react to, and then hours later we're completely fuming, and actually somebody else bears the brunt of our anger and resentment. 
So often sin grows in our lives and we need to be so careful about that. We need to be examining our hearts and repenting. But this isn't a gospel of works. The only way that we will actually change, the only way that we're going to be able to battle sin is to fix our eyes and remember that we are made right with God only by the blood of Jesus Christ. We fix our eyes on him. We fix our eyes on him offering up his life instead of ours so that actually through his blood we can be justified. We seek not to let our sinful desires rule us but we seek out a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So even tonight is an opportunity to repent for times this week that you may have been unjustifiably angry. To look at things in your life that actually are leading you to frustration and questioning, am I living out somebody as a Christian who looks at the Lord Jesus Christ in this? Am I gospel-centered in my approach to fighting sin? Or do I instead justify my little fits of anger and my thoughts in my head where I get frustrated as just being okay and just being normal? It's an area in our lives that so often we're not challenged on and we just let slide. But we see that actually it leads to death. But we have an incredible gospel that we know that, like Abel, our offering is seen as righteous, not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus. And finally, if you're not a Christian here tonight, well, God has given his one and only son to die for the sin of humanity. There's a reason this world is so broken. that You can't watch the news without seeing death and violence. But to reject the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice would be a terrible thing. But like Cain, God will give you what you want. And he'll cast you out of his presence. But the offer you have tonight is to accept that free gift of being righteous with him through Jesus and that hope that we all have that one day we'll have a reality where no longer will there be murder and violence but actually we'll be in perfect community with God all because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, look at this world and it's so easy for us to um, judge the things that we see on the news. Um, We uh, judge even people as we're walking past them by the way they look, thinking that they might be violent. And yet when we look at our own hearts, we know that we do not measure up to your standards. Lord, we pray that we would be looking to the Lord Jesus Christ that we'd be reminded of how he shed his blood, which speaks a better word than the cries of Abel. We know that this world is crying out for justice. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ went to the cross and that even though he was completely innocent, he gave his life for us. Would that help us when we approach things like um, anger and jealousy? And ultimately, Lord, would you help us to be a church in which um, people do not just come out of um, duty um, and out of trying to justify ourselves, but we come as a people who have been marked by grace, 
are people who seek to be growing in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, completely relying on him. In Jesus' name, amen.